It's Friday, December 31st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Work burnout has been an issue for some time, but the pandemic has shown many people just how much their work has taken over their lives. With constant meetings and new pressures, people are struggling to take control. Unfortunately, sometimes it takes a life-changing event to realize it. Rachel Feinzig, work and life columnist at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for why maybe you should care a little less to get your life back. Next, what happens when you order things online and send them back? You may think it makes its way back to the shelf and on its way to another person, but that is rarely true. Oftentimes, items make their way to bulk resellers overseas, they're stripped for parts, or just plain thrown away. Returns are a big problem for companies that are expected to have generous return policies as a default. These reverse logistics are many times cost prohibitive to deal with. Amanda Mull, staff writer at The Atlantic, joins us for the nasty logistics of returning your online items. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. And he had a heart attack. And like one of his first thoughts was like, you know, it was an expletive. I don't know if I can say it on your radio program. I couldn't say it in the Wall Street Journal, but he was like, I got to meet with my manager tomorrow. Like this isn't convenient. Joining us now is Rachel Feinzig, work and life columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to talk about something, you know, we've been hearing for a long time, obviously, we heard a, a lot about it throughout the pandemic, burnout. You know, there's been a lot of burnout for people who were working a lot of extra time during the pandemic, despite what was going on. And now that we're getting back to work and a lot of people are going back to offices, that burnout feel is still kind of there. And, you know, what we're seeing is, you know, more meetings. People are still having to do Zoom meetings, even though they're back in the office. Mm-hmm. Uh, all, you know, all sorts of stuff is going on. And, you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, people are trying to get that perspective, uh, make their work life better. And it's tough. So you wrote an article kind of exploring this. And one of the things, you know, the headline says it catches your eye. Maybe you should care less about your job. Now, I know you're not meeting that in the most literal of sense, but gaining that perspective, taking back the control is very important. Yeah. I mean, that was my thesis. And and I'm not, I'm not talking about slacking off. I'm not talking about like napping all day or, you know, I did a story a couple of weeks back about, you know, having two jobs and kind of gaming the system. I'm, I'm really just talking about having some emotional distance from your job, being able to say no to little things that don't matter, figuring out what actually matters and what doesn't. And what one expert told me, she was like, if you're having to ask yourself this question, like if if you're kind of like inherently like an overachiever and a little too obsessed with work, she was like, you could probably take it down like 25% and you'd (laughs) still be doing a good job. And that really resonated with me. And that's so hard for a lot of people, right? We uh, tend to let our jobs become our identities in many parts of it. And it's just really hard to detach. You know, how many times do you hear, learn to love what you do or, you know, the grind never stops, you know, all these things that, you know, just kind of more firmly put you into that mode of, uh, of thinking you can never really stop doing that stuff. And a lot of times to gain some of this perspective, sometimes something major has to happen. You opened your story with a man who was 45 years old, pretty young. He had a heart attack and that was the catalyst for him to really say, okay, I need to change things. 
His story was so moving to me. I I had seen a LinkedIn post that he wrote months ago and immediately thought of him for this piece. He sat down to get started on work, you know, on a Sunday for the prep for the work week. And he had a heart attack. And like one of his first thoughts was like, you know, it was an expletive. I don't know if I can say it on your radio program. I couldn't say it in the Wall Street Journal. But he was like, I got to meet with my manager tomorrow. Like this isn't convenient. And he survived and kind of changed his life and changed his perspective. He talked a bunch about what you were talking about too, this sense that like your work becomes your job. You're supposed to find purpose and meaning in your work, you know, like that's the thing and hustle culture. You're supposed to always be improving yourself. Um, And not that those things aren't kind of valuable goals, but I think like we've taken it too far a little bit. I feel that in myself a lot where, you know, uh, some life event happens and I'm like, wow, this is really messing up what I have to do tomorrow at work or something, you know, or wanting to take time off and just saying, well, I have to prep so much more just to take that time off. It's really tough to detach. So, so what do we do then? You know, a lot of people say, Hey, you know, it's easy to just say, change the life, uh, you know, focus less on the unimportant things. Everybody says that's so easy to do, but, but how do we get there? What do we, how should we get that perspective then? Yeah. One expert told me, just like, think to yourself, like, is this thing really part of my job? Like, do I really have to do it? Like what would happen if I didn't have to, if I didn't do it? And some things like definitely are part of your job and you will not get a paycheck if you don't do them. And it varies from person to person, but you know, kind of like she likened her book is kind of likened to the Marie Kondo thing of like, you know, does it spark joy? You know, if not, let it go. And her thing is like, if it's not really important, let it go. And probably your manager will tell you if you like pull back on something that is important. But in in many cases, we don't even know, we can't even figure out what's important. So everything becomes a fire drill. And then we're kind of just worse at a lot of parts of our jobs. What should employers be doing? Because sometimes they're jerks and they're not going to care. But there's a lot of employers that do wish to help their employees strike that work-life balance. What should they be doing on their part? You know, companies have done things like give people like bonus days off or bonus weeks off, or they've had listening sessions about burnout or meeting free days. It's all well-intentioned and a a good start. But what folks told me was it has to go beyond that. So if you're giving me a week off, you have to like loosen my deadlines and decrease expectations. If people are leaving, you know, the company because we're seeing so many resignations, you need to add more resources to my project in some way, whether that's by bringing on other team members or adding, you know, more automation or technology that could help. Like you have to really reduce the work in order to put some of these other benefits in. And workers are feeling it. Uh, According to some recent surveys, nearly 90% of workers said they'd experienced burnout over the past year. I'm definitely one of them. More than half of them (laughs) said that their workloads increased during the pandemic. So, you know, know, it becomes a problem uh, on that front. So let's say you do strike that balance. You get a little more free time. One of those things that experts say is don't, you know, necessarily start a brand new hobby right away because now you're just kind of reshuffling that time and, and you know, uh, you're not giving your, your, yourself that chance to relax, let's say. You can start a hobby, but just like don't go overboard with it. You know, like someone told me like, you want to start running, that's great. You don't need to train for a marathon, like try a 5K first. <laughs> yeah. You want to make this sustainable and you don't want to add more stress. Rachel Feinzig, work and life columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Let's <laughs> go.
so we're in a situation where people who shop online for shoes, for clothes, for cosmetics, for home furnishings, for literally anything, expect to be able to buy a bunch of stuff they don't know if they actually want or don't know if it will fit and return it. Joining us now is Amanda Mull, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us, Amanda. Thank you for having me. I wanted to talk about an interesting story you wrote, the nasty logistics of returning items that you might have bought online. It's kind of baked into, you know, all sorts of businesses now. These, uh, you know, buy a bunch of different sizes, buy a bunch of different items and return anything you want. Free shipping, free returns. But, you know, what happens when you do return those items? A lot of times things are thrown away. Sometimes they're shipped to other countries to be resold. There's really a lot of waste that goes with it. And part of it, you know, obviously the clothing is such a huge part of online sales right now. For myself, I'm a little old school still. I, I like to go into the stores, try things on. So if it doesn't fit, you know, I'm buying the right price. But the way online shopping has gone now and, the, you know, how so many people buy things online, you'll buy multiple sizes, you know, whatever fits, doesn't, everything gets turned back. And the reverse logistics of this, sending things back is kind of a mess. So Amanda, start us off a little bit with what we're seeing here. Like you mentioned, there are these sort of like the suite of behaviors that online shopping has incentivized people into. And sometimes not just incentivized, but explicitly encouraged people to adopt. Ordering multiple sizes, ordering stuff you're not sure about it with the promise that you can return it in 30 days or in a year or in six months or however long with no risk and with a full refund, things like that. These promises, these incentives exist in order to convert people from shopping in person, which is what people have done since the dawn of time, <laughs> since as long as we've had commerce, to shopping online. And for a lot of types of purchases, clothing, shoes, cosmetics in particular, it was a little bit difficult to encourage people to start ordering these things on the internet because personal taste and uh, fit and sort of the indescribable qualities of something matter a lot to a person in these types of purchases. So in order to convert people to online shopping and to get them used to buying more and more types of goods on the internet, retailers basically had to set up this litany of policies to make people feel comfortable doing that, to take away all of the risk from buying a pair of jeans on the internet instead of driving to the mall and buying it in person. And that has really sort of shaped the way that people understand online shopping and that people understand what will happen after they buy something and their expectations of how stores will act if they want to send something back. So we're in a situation where people who shop online for shoes, for clothes, for cosmetics, for home furnishings, for literally anything, expect to be able to buy a bunch of stuff they don't know if they actually want or don't know if it will fit and return it and get their full refund and have weeks or sometimes months in order to do that. Yeah, it, um, it, it's really baked in now. And there's I know there's people that shop specifically on that. It's like if they don't have a good return policy, then, you know, I'm going to take my business elsewhere. People really expect these types of policies when they're looking to make a purchase online now because it's been really widely adopted. And there's a lot of consumer research showing that if your company does not offer, you know, at the very least, a 30-day full money-back guarantee policy, then people just won't order stuff from you. And the competition is so stiff online that, that retailers can't really afford to not offer these policies. So you get people ordering a lot of stuff that they're not sure about, a lot of stuff that might not fit, and sending it back. And as a consumer, once you've turned something over to the post office, dropped it in the mail, 
whatever, your visibility of, of what happens to that thing basically ends. Right. Um, and that is largely by design. <laughs> Because I think that if people understood what happened after they returned something this way or what might happen, they would be a lot less likely to buy as much as they do. And it's in the best interest of stores for you to buy a lot. Totally. And, you know, your, your story in that sense was pretty eye opening. So let's talk about the scope of this real quick. Estimates vary. But in the past year, they say that one third to one half of all clothing bought in the U.S. came from the Internet. So you know, when you're talking about return rates, the average brick and mortar store has a return rate in the single digits. But online, this is anywhere from 15 to 30 percent. And retailers took back more than 100 billion dollars in merchandise sold online. So we're talking about a lot of stuff coming back. Now, let's get into some of the messy part. What happens when stuff gets sent back? Like I said, it'll go to bulk resellers sometimes. Sometimes, you know, if they're electronics or something, they'll be stripped for parts. And a lot of times things are just plainly thrown away. What happens after you return something depends largely on what that thing is. If it's a dress from a fast fashion store, a lot of times that will just be thrown away. Because if you if you look at the numbers of it and the companies who sell this stuff are just going on math, they're not going on anything else. By one estimate, every return costs a, a retailer 10 to $20 before you factor in the cost of shipping in either direction. So if you are you know, sending something back at the end of the return policy, which might be 30 days, might be 60 days, and it's a fast fashion dress, then it's not clear, it's not obvious whether or not that thing will even still be for sale on the retailer's website for it to be restocked and sent to somebody else. It's also not clear whether that thing can be can be sold at full price if it is still stocked because fast fashion in particular turns over so fast and because its fit tends to be really variable. The quality of goods tends to be really unpredictable. It has yeah. both really high return rates and really pretty bad rates of restocking. That's why in some cases they even just say, hey, well, keep that size, maybe gift it to somebody else. We're going to send you the right size. It's like we don't even want to deal with it coming back. Just hand it off to somebody else. And retailers like Amazon, Target, I think Walmart also have started just telling people to keep stuff that they want to return in the past couple of years, which is sort of giving away the game here. Because if they're not taking it back, it's because they would lose money taking it back. So this whole process for one item is often just too expensive to accommodate some of the cheap stuff that people buy and people buy it by the container load. So when that happens, things are either going to be thrown away, just put directly into a landfill, or they're going to be offloaded to a sort of gray market that not a lot of people are aware of in that stuff gets sold off by the pound, by the pallet, by the container load. Some of that will go to outlet stores, off price stores, TJ Maxx, things like that big lots to be sold again, hopefully, and if not, then probably thrown away. Or it gets sold to middlemen who ship it overseas and piece by piece go through it and see what they might be able to sell to people in poorer countries through stores there. And then what they don't think they can sell in stores there gets thrown away. So it becomes a trash problem in another country. But it's really hard (laughs) to keep track of what happens to any of this after it's off the initial retailer's books. They aren't keeping track. You move so naturally through your article. That's why I always appreciate your writing. You make a note in the article. So here's the point where you start thinking, why don't people start donating this stuff more? Why don't companies donate this? 
And that's another problem too with with money. Obviously, you know that you there's a thing called brand dilution. You start giving away things too much, it's going to make uh, you know some of your other stuff seem less valuable. So it's not in their best interest to even donate things that are really just going to be going to waste. And you especially get into this with things that are sort of like upmarket branded, so name brand shoes, clothing, things like that. There there have been a, a number of distinct scandals over the years with particular luxury brands who have been caught destroying, burning, shredding piles of winter coats and things like that, which are are things that, you know, people in the United States need. That's under no circumstances something that everybody has access to here. But those things end up destroyed because the calculation that brands do is that if they start clothing poor people, essentially, with their with their wares and with their brand name, then the people who buy their stuff for full price are going to decide that it's not worth that anymore. So their branding theoretically cannot survive right. charity. And like I said, there's no regulation on what businesses uh, are supposed to do with their excess stock. So they are absolutely free and clear if they make the calculation to destroy this stuff instead of giving it to people who could use it. The retail logistics industry is in two parts. The forward logistics, which is all the stuff moving it from the manufacturers all the way down to us. Reverse logistics is what we're talking about right now that gets really messy it's expensive for the companies to take it back. And like, as we've been discussing, a lot of times doesn't get restocked, any of that. So what do companies say about this? I mean, this is a, it seems to be a threat, at least money-wise, you know, how this baked-in idea now that everything should be able to be returned regardless, it's expensive. So what do companies uh, say about it? What are they doing about it? This is one of those sort of rare topics in consumerism where basically everyone involved agrees that this is bad and that we wish it weren't like this. Reverse logistics, two different experts that I spoke to for the article use the word nasty to describe it. It is really expensive, labor intensive, sometimes literally gross work to do. They would rather not have to deal with it. They would rather find good ways to, to limit their returns and to ensure that more people who bought from their stores actually kept their merchandise. That would make a lot of things about their businesses a lot easier. But they've got a consumer base that has a lot of choices and that has has been incentivized into a certain set of behaviors that really nobody is willing to let go of. I think that, you know, as far as everyone I spoke to and and what I know about the consumer industry, what would probably have to happen for this to change to any significant extent would have to be some sort of regulation on how on how retailers are allowed to dispose of their extras. You know, probably Amazon deciding that they just don't want to play this game anymore and that you're going to have to keep your stuff if you order it and relying on the fact that they are so big and so deeply woven into so many people's lives to cushion the fact that they would probably lose some customers over that. And then once the big boys do it, the smaller companies are sort of free to move in line with those policies. But until until someone with some real power decides that this is something that's not going to be tolerated anymore, I think people are just going to end up continuing to engage in this behavior. And for a lot of people, like if you live in a rural area, if you don't have reliable transportation, if you wear a size outside of a really narrow norm, if you are disabled in certain ways that make it harder to use physical stores for you, or if you just live in a place where a lot of the stores have closed because everybody shops online now, you know, you might not have a lot of great options except ordering three sizes of one thing on the internet and (laughs) trying to figure out, you know, what your size is at at a new store or something like that. Even if you don't want to partake in that behavior, even if you understand that it's bad, there are just a lot of circumstances that sort of push you into it because that is how 
the retail powers that be have decided that this is going to work. It's just so interesting in a time when we're hearing constant stories about supply chain issues and manufacturing problems. This is that flip side of the stuff. Once you get your stuff and you send it back as uh, for whatever reason, it gets just as messy. So it's a great article. I suggest everybody go out and read the whole thing. Amanda Mull, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.